Father in heaven, we ask now that by your spirit you would help me to say words that are true. And we pray for all of our hearts that the eyes of our hearts would be open to see you for who you are, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in all your glory, to see that you are holy and to long ourselves to exalt your name. Amen. So the application for today is exalt Jesus. Exalt God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Lift him up and bow down in worship. That's the application for today. And this is a good thing. And here's why. Radically, lifting up God is a central component of what it means to be a Christian. Unless we get to a place in our lives where our goal is to lift up the name of Jesus, then we will be short of God's purpose for our lives and we'll be short of the message of the Bible. One way to understand the move from not being a Christian to being a Christian is a change of worship. We once worshipped and served created things. Now we worship and serve the Creator. And a crucial component of worship is exalting, making a big deal of, glorifying. Therefore, one way to put the good news of Jesus is that through him, God has rescued us from the irrational, unsatisfying, and ultimately rebellious state of worshipping lesser things to being given the sight and capacity to worship the one existing being who is actually worthy of our worship. To see who God really is with the eyes of the heart, to know his work for us through Christ and to love him for it all, this is liberty and joy and life. Or, Jesus, put it this way, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Why do I say this today? Because this is where the psalm takes us. Look at what the psalm says, uh, what it calls us to, rather, in verse 3. Speaking of the nations, the psalm says, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Praise. Then we have repeated twice in verses 5 and 9, Exalt the Lord our God and worship. Exalt. That's the response. That's the call. Lift him up and bow yourself down. This psalm doesn't encourage us to much at all except praise, worship, and exalting God. I suspect that Christianity is boring if we haven't got to the point where that is lovely. And there's not much more that I can offer 
to sweeten it for you. If we don't get that, then we'll find that uh, the gospel will keep letting us down. Now, it may sound like an odd thing for God to tell us to exalt his name, a bit self-absorbed himself, uh, you might think, Uh, but he is the one being in all the universe for whom this is not a selfish thing, but a loving thing. For him to call us to himself and call us to exalt him is the best thing he could do for us. We are made for worship. We are made by God and our purpose is to lift something up. If we are not lifting up Jesus, we will be lifting up lesser things. And so lifting up Jesus is actually the best thing for us. And the reality is, we are already busy exalting things all the time. And I suspect we enjoy it. Think about all the other things that we get our lives absorbed around. I'll give you a personal example. A man named Kelly Slater. You may may or may not know who he is. He's a professional surfer and he's an 11 times world champion. He's currently 47 years old and he's still competing on the world tour. Surfing's an athletic sport, remember. And he's still winning big events. He recently won the Vans Triple Crown in Hawaii. And he's holding his own and knocking out some of the best surfers in the world. That's Kelly Slater. Now, he's 47. Did I say that? He's 11 times world champ. Right? Which, if you're not initiated, being the world champ doesn't mean that you've won 11 events, right? Like in, uh, am I right in thinking in golf, you win the US Open, you won that event, correct? Or the Wimbledon, you won that event. No, no, no. It's being at the top of the ladder for the whole year, right? So that means to be the world champ for 11 times means you are the best surfer for the duration of a whole year. For 11 years, he's 47 years old, and he's still going. Now, I'll be honest, there's not a huge diversity to each wave, right? And sport's a bit like that, isn't it? Lots of sports are the same. They're basically the same thing over and over. But I love it. And I'll watch it multiple times, and I'll say... What a wave. What a wave. And then I'll say, Joe, how good is Kelly Slater? Does she care? (laughs) Probably not. But I'll tell her again anyway. Babe, Kelly Slater is so good. I just want him to keep on winning. I want him to be like a surfing Yoda at 150 years old, just still going. Why? Because I love greatness. I love greatness. I want to see it. I want to enjoy it. I want to celebrate it. And then I want to say, Kelly Slater. Such a good surfer. But if I get stuck here, or this gets disproportionate in my world of loves, 
It will spoil me. Because I'm made for something more stable and more deeply satisfying. I'm made for something way bigger and way better than watching Kelly Slater get barreled all the time. I'm made to exalt the being that is unique above all things, the holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That was a long introduction. This is my prayer now for us all. God, help us to see. The psalm itself breaks into three sections. And holy is the clue word that ends each section and shows us the divisions. So if you look down, you'll see in verse 3, you see there, he is holy. And then you see in verse 5, that from 4 and 5 then to the next section, you'll see it concludes, he is holy. And then you'll see again, finally, in verse 9, at the very bottom, for the Lord our God is holy. And the psalmist concludes each of those sections with a call to exalt our holy God. And what he does in the substance of each of those sections is show us ways in which the Lord our God is holy and worthy of our worship. And so we'll follow that structure for the remaining of our time looking at each of those three sections uh, briefly together. So the first one is... The Lord is holy on his higher throne. Praise him. The first thing the psalm gets us to think about is the holy God on his higher throne. Verse 1. The Lord reigns. There's the statement. It hangs there. There is a throne, people, that is higher above and more significant and important than all the visible thrones of this world. And getting our minds up to contemplate on this reality is a starting point for sanity. This is a way to set our compasses each day, to ponder the oh-so-much-higher unseen throne of God and the oh-so-much-more-important one who sits on it. We heard this same line, the Lord reigns, just a few weeks ago, and why do we need to hear it again? We need to hear it again because it is so easy to be daily dominated by the visible, isn't it? Isn't it so easy to have forgotten that two weeks ago we had the Lord reigns? We need the encouragement to lift our eyes of faith, to see the invisible reality that Jesus who was made for a little while low and humble as a servant, God has now exalted to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We need to be reminded that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the true reality over all that exists. 
And we need this other horizon beyond the horizons that we face every day. We need that horizon beyond the horizon of our kids, beyond the horizon of our jobs, beyond the horizon of our relationships or lack thereof, beyond the horizon of our pains, of our anxieties, of our fears, of our looks, of our school. Look up, O heart, and see that the Lord reigns. See the bigger picture of my life and the bigger picture of this present world and the highest realities that exist. This is where my hope lies. Look what words the psalm uses to describe the Lord in his rule in this first section. He says there, great, verse 2, is the Lord. He is exalted. That means he's high. His name is great. As for the nations, what should they do? They should tremble. The earth should shake. He is holy. He is awesome. Why has he done that? He's done that because the collective force of those words is that we are supposed to see that our God is awesome. And awesome in the old way of using the word. Like they used to have the word awful which wasn't necessarily to describe something evil or bad, but rather something that was full of awe. Or dreadful was another word they had. Not something necessarily bad, but, something, but concerning something so magnificent that it moves you. This is what we're dealing with here, with the Lord. The Lord reigns. It is awesome. Nothing on earth compares. Perhaps when you first go into space and see the earth below, and you've never seen this before and no one else has either, a round ball suspended with blackness all around, and there you are in your ship, just lost in an endless sea of black nothing, And you look out, and there's the whole earth. And it's difficult to take in what you're seeing. And you just cry because of the sheer magnitude of the moment, because it's so moving. Or perhaps you've heard that woman who lets out her voice to sing, and your hair stands on end, And the sound, full, loud, rich, and the beauty of the lyrics, and the passion with which she sings, and people are physically moved. This is an awesome moment. Take those two examples and ramp them up 
about a hundred billion times and stand in the presence of the one enthroned between the cherubim with four mighty living creatures like nothing you've ever seen before, with wings and all over covered in eyes, bowing down at his throne, and the 24 elders casting their crowns before him, and myriads of myriads of angels encircling the throne, and the living creatures all around, and with a loud sound like mighty waterfalls crashing, crying out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. There is a higher throne. And the Lord is on it. Let the nations tremble. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Secondly... The Lord is holy in his government. Let's look at verse 4. It says, The king, that's the Lord, is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and right. The Lord is holy, secondly, in his government, in how he rules. The first thing I noticed in reading these verses was the tenses. Did you see that? He has done what is just and right. In other words, he has governed Israel well. How easy do you think it would be, or would have been, for every Israelite to sing that verse? My guess is that for quite a number this would have been quite difficult as Psalm 99 comes rolling around. Could they sing it in every season? Israel went through some tough seasons. Could they say, you have done what is just and right? Verses 4 and 5 make a big claim. They say that the Lord has not treated anyone unfairly He's not made any bad calls. Is this something we ourselves can sing about the Lord's governance of our lives? If not, how can we be helped to see the truth of what this psalm says in these verses? How can we be helped to see and to say, the Lord has done what is just and right? Allow me, if you will, to tread with caution out on these deep waters and go a little way. How might we think? What might help us to think the right way? I think firstly, I think I can start with remembering how much I deserve. And I think that will get me a long way. I have no claim to life. Every breath has been a gift to me. I never existed before my own existence such that I could lay claim to my coming into being. In other words, I wasn't, I wasn't there before I was born to say, 
let's make sure that Dave comes into existence. I am by his will. That's, that's how I am. I am actually further away now, apart from Christ, from a claim to anything than when I first began. Why? Because when I'm born, I already owe every breath to God. Every single action, every single thought. My whole life is designed for him, made by him, sustained by him, and every part of me is for his purpose. But I have not loved his glory and lived for him with every minute. And so I am in a deficit I'm in a deficit and I can never repay back anything because every penny of my time is already rightly his. There's no surplus. On my own, I can only ever accrue debt. On my own, I can only ever move further and further away from being deserving of anything. That's what I'm like. That's the first thing. I think about how much I actually deserve. Second, I think I would do well to remember how big God is. We've just considered briefly how vast he is, but further meditation would do me well too. He hears, as an example, he hears my prayers in the small house on 47 Essex Street. Oh gosh, now everybody in the internet knows where I live. <clears throat> he hears my, my, my tiny little prayers, right? He hears them. And simultaneously, he hears the prayers, simultaneously, he hears the prayers of my brother in Australia. Not by means of Wi-Fi, but by means of being in both places at once. And not part of him there and part of him here, but all of him there and all of him here. And not two of him, so that he's there and here, but one of him. And not more of him there and less of him here, but equally fully there and fully here. And yet not contained here or there by space or time as though anything can find him. That's a brief thought. And if your mind didn't keep up with it, that's what it's like. Is it any wonder that I don't understand all of his ways? Is it any wonder that the justice of his government will at times escape my reasoning. I'd do well to think about how big God is. Third, I can look to the cross. Lest God become lost in a cloud of mystery, I can remember where he has revealed his character and will. And he's done that at the cross. Here at the cross, I see his commitment to justice. 
He's so committed that he was willing to give his son in order to uphold justice. His holiness would not allow the simple sweeping of our sins under the rug of the universe, but required the just punishment to be poured out on his son, our substitute. And him, not unwillingly, but voluntarily. Jesus. For our sakes. Here at the cross, I see that he doesn't just let sin go, and he really will punish sinners. So I don't need to fret that evildoers appear to have escaped for now and thereby question his government. He has already said that vengeance is his and he will repay. And if the perpetrators turn to Christ and trust in him, justice will still have been met. And if they don't, God's punishment will be sufficient and fitting on the final day. Here at the cross, we see God's commitment to justice is real. And it always was real. He gave one word to Adam and Eve. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. One word. I've given, them, I've given the, you the instruction. The devil tried to swing Eve's mind. You will not surely die. Or in other words... God's not a God of judgment, silly. You're not going to die. Gosh, for eating an apple. How wrong he was. One word, one bite, and God did not break his word. And he won't in the future either. But here at the cross, I can also see his love for me. I see the way he made a way for me to be forgiven. Here at the cross, I can see his commitment to do me, the one who trusts in Christ, good. And so I can trust his government. And fourth and finally, it helps when I remember my place in the history of God's plan. I remember that we're in the middle of the story. And I remember his promises yet to come. It may not look now that I understand his government, but he has promised to wipe away every tear. He has promised that in his presence, at his right hand, are pleasures forevermore. He has promised that all evil will be removed from his kingdom forever. He has promised such peace and security that we will have in his kingdom that the doors will never need to be locked and he has promised that death will die forever when it comes to God's justice we can say that he has demonstrated his commitment to it at the cross we can say that in his wisdom and grace through the cross he's, he has made a way for his justice to serve me favourably. We can say that by his holy character, he will do just as he has promised. That by his perfect knowledge, his justice will be accurate. In his kindness, it will be just. By his power, he will perform it unstoppably. And in his eternity, 
He will maintain it unchangeably. Has or can anyone or anything else do this for me? Can they? Nothing. There's no substitute. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob, you have done and you will do what is just and right. That's the the Lord is holy in his government. And thirdly and finally, the Lord is holy in his ways. This final section uh, concerns God's holy character in being both gracious and just. So we've just thought about his justice, his government, but now we see that there is grace and justice. And this section reminds us of the way in which God has provided a way for his people to approach and live with him. How does that work? So it runs from verses 6 to 9, so look with me. And you'll see, uh, I actually don't know in your Burgundy Bibles, but is it split into two sections? Is there a gap? I think that the gap, I think that you can close that gap. And here's why, because in verse 8, it carries on the theme, Lord our God, you answered them, which was the theme in verses 6 and 7. Did you notice all the words? They called on his name, they called on the Lord, he answered them, he spoke to them. And then verse 8, Lord our God, you answered them. You see? And I think because of the holy, holy, holy structure, I think that's the way to take the psalm. And I think it all goes together. And we'll see what I mean in just a minute. So a tiny little bit of background is that in Exodus chapter 34... Uh, a dilemma is raised because of the character of God. He says that he is gracious and merciful. He reveals himself to Moses and he says that he's gracious and merciful. But he also adds, sorry, gracious and merciful and who forgives sins. Okay? That's what he says about his character on that side. But then he also adds that he by no means clears the guilty but punishes sin. Can you see the dilemma? And it's a dilemma that's recalled here, and that's why I mention it, and it's what we see in verse 8. Look there. You were to Israel a forgiving God, you see, though you punished their misdeeds. Did anybody else think, I don't know what to do with that? You see that? You were a forgiving God, Though you punish their misdeeds. Well, which is it? And how does it work? And how do we know that we're going to get the right one? Right? Or is it just to toss the coin and hope for the best? Or talk a lot about how he's a forgiving God and kind of just block that other one out of our minds for a bit. Which is quite a common way to do it. But there's a better way to take them both head on and see what God does. 
And I think the clue is hidden in our psalm. Part of it. The whole Bible gives us more of the answer. But So, here's why. Okay, come with me. Last little bit. Why mention Moses, Aaron and Samuel? I think he helps us out by saying Moses and Aaron were among his priests. You see? Because they're priests. Samuel also, if you remember, was one who was placed at the temple working among the priests. And what do priests do? They mediate for people. So it's not just that they function as examples of people, these guys here in this psalm, who call out to the Lord, right? And that we might think, oh, we should call out to the Lord too. Though they do that, they function as examples and we should call out to the Lord and we should keep his statutes. But they function here, I think, as intermediaries between God and the people. Right? And this is critical because this is a pattern in the Bible. The pattern in the Bible is people don't just approach God on their own whenever they feel like it. Okay? God is holy. At home, as a family, we've been reading Leviticus and Numbers, and something that has struck me afresh is the danger of the tabernacle. You ask Isaac when he comes back, are you allowed to just go into the tabernacle, Isaac? No. Is the tabernacle safe, Isaac? I guess it depends. Certainly not safe if you just go in on your own. What will happen if you do? You'll die. Correct. God is holy and you don't just wander into the tabernacle where he is. It's great having God in your midst, but it's also dangerous having God in your midst. God is holy. If you want to approach him, <clears throat> and you want to be a part of his people, you need to go through the right procedures, and mediators are key. As I look back in the first few books of the Bible uh, to find which times God forgave the Israelites and which times he punished them, right? Because he's recalling here now. Remember he says in the psalm, he says, you know, you spoke to them from the pillar of cloud. So he's recalling, ah, those are those Moses, Aaron. This is like, ah, the Exodus days, the wilderness days. So I went back there and I thought, okay, where did he forgive and where did he punish and there was a thread running through the stories. A pattern in forgiveness was the presence of some sort of mediation, something in between the Lord and the sinner or sinners. And that's where forgiveness happened. So, just some examples for you. The golden calf, if you remember. Moses comes down the mountain. The Lord is super angry with them because they've started to commit idolatry. They're worshipping the golden calf. And Moses intervenes. No, don't, do, don't destroy them, don't wipe them out, because that's not good for your name. The nations are going to think you don't have the power to bring them into the land that you promised to give them. Things are at stake, Moses says. Your character, your promises, your power. 
But the key thing, Moses intervenes. Or the Israelites grumble in the wilderness about God's uh, leading and provision of them, and so he sends snakes to kill them. But again, Moses intervenes, and God tells Moses to make a snake on a pole and hold it up, and all who look at it will be healed and live. God provides the intermediary means, and all who look at the snake live. They don't have to flip a coin and guess, is God going to be great? Is, am I going to get forgiveness or punishment here now? Look to the snake, and there's forgiveness. Or Miriam and Aaron, they grumble against Moses. They say, oh, you think you've, you're the only one who's God's chosen leader. And Miriam is punished with a skin disease. Right? But again, Moses intervenes and Miriam is healed after seven days. Moses prays for her. There's an intermediary and she's healed. But one example on the other side is Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, famous example of uh, these two guys who are priests, where they die suddenly... And it's a bit of a shock as you read the story because they've offered sacrifices in the wrong way. Right? And then I thought, ah, there's a difference with these guys. They are the mediators. They don't have a mediator because they're meant to be the mediator. So when we read here in this psalm a reminder about Moses and Aaron and Samuel and the priesthood and the calling and the answering and the speaking, we're reminded as God's people about God forgiving and punishing, but we're reminded about his mediators, those who stood in between God and the people and how God favourably received these mediators. He heard them, he listened to them, and he answered them. They were faithful mediators, and it was good for the people. We've looked at the holy God on his throne, the holy God in his government of the world, but here is a new kind of wonder. The holy God in providing a way for unholy people to be in a relationship with him. Here is where the real wonder is. That God has stooped down and without compromising his holy character or diminishing the seriousness of sin... Not by just blocking it out and pushing it away like it doesn't exist. Providing the means by which sin is removed and a way is made for God's people to enter into his presence. <clears throat> and as we know, these are examples. These mediators are the shadows of Christ, who's the true priest who stands in our place, he's the one who's lifted up on the pole so that all who look to him will be healed, 
without doubt, no tossing of the coin, no guessing if I'm going to get forgiveness or punishment from God. He's the one whose blood was shed, the sacrifice was killed, so that our sins are removed. This is perfect forgiveness provided. This is justice completely met. This is all sins completely gone. And this is forgiveness provided by God for us. And Christ stands in heaven, now still. He's both king and priest, mediating on our behalf. He lives forever, and he's never going to stop being there. And he's entered into the true tabernacle in heaven, where we ourselves are on our way to be. We don't have to doubt this, we don't have to question, we don't have to guess, we don't have to hope for heaven. We can look back and say, ah, God's ways, he provides a mediator. He's just and he's loving and he's made a way through Christ. And that is the case for me. So, Saints at Magdalene Road. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, at the foot of the cross, for the Lord our God is holy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you've made a way through Christ that this biggest issue of ours is dealt with that we can be confident because of his work thank you for his faithfulness for the way that he offers up prayers for us and he stands in our place that he shed his blood to cover our sins and that we can be confident and sure of our way into your presence I pray that we would grab hold of that I pray that we would be more stunned by it as we see that we can enter into the true tabernacle in heaven because of the blood of Christ. Please, Father, open the eyes of our hearts. Give us good cheer. In Jesus' name, amen.